We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It is the Field of 68 after dark on this Thursday night, December the 2nd, 2021. I am John Fanta. He is Sean Paul with us tonight, Mr. Mid-Major, with tons of news and notes throughout the next hour, and then doing great work with Heat Check. Eli Becker is with us as well. Big show on the docket, folks. We'll give you our consensus top five players in America up to this point in the season. We'll talk about top conferences as well. Biggest surprises, the biggest disappointments, and a look ahead to the weekend. Plus, we welcome in Norfolk State head coach Robert Jones as he has led Norfolk State to a 9-1 start to the season. That is best by a MEAC school ever, ever. So that's coming up. Uh, let's get the night started here, gentlemen. We've started the month of December. Sean, give me the biggest headline in college basketball that you are paying attention to right now. You know, I would actually mention two things here. The two Iowa schools are really standing out, both of them. They've both been very impressive. I didn't think either were NCAA tournament teams heading into the year. But Iowa beat Virginia on the road the other day. They had beat every team they played up to that point by 24 or more, but they were all home by games. So how much stock do you put into that? Keegan Murray has been one of the best players in college basketball this season. But replacing what they lost, Luca Garza, Joe Camp, C.J. Frederick, that's not easy to do. But Keegan and Chris Murray, Keegan's twin brother, have both really stood out this season. Jordan Bohannon's there. And at Iowa State, they look like an NCAA tournament caliber team to this point, too. They were picked last in the Big 12, but Tyrese Hunter looks like a future NBA player. Uh, Gabe Kalsher has looked really good. Isaiah Brockington. So T.J. Otzelberger's done a great job. Job, mixing in his young guys with veterans from the transfer portal. Both Iowa teams have been really impressive. Eli, give me your biggest headline that you're paying attention to right now. I think one of the main things that we've seen so far this season, now that it is more of a capacity crowd aspect in college basketball, is just the variety of upsets that we've seen. I think last time was a really good example. BYU going on the road against Utah Valley and, and being stunned with all the hype that the Cougars have rightfully deserved to this point in the season, but we had a stretch of at least seven or eight days where there was at least one top 25 upset against an unranked team. And that wasn't necessarily the case last season. And I do think home crowds are playing a, a big role there. And there are going to be a number of teams that suffer some of these Q2, Q3, possibly even Q4 losses, if not scares in non-conference play. And we know 
just how big of a deal that is come Selection Sunday. So I think there are some landmines out there. There have been a lot of buy games that have been closer than expected. Several conferences from the mid and low major ranks that have performed pretty well and admirably to this point in the season. So that's one of the main things that I've seen, and we've seen it just about every single night there's been a scare or two. My headline goes out to Mackey Arena. The year of the Boilers. That is the situation for Purdue. It is all in front of them to make that highly sought-after Final Four for this program to break through in the Matt Painter era. They've had good enough teams to do that. They have a team that is head and shoulders even above those teams with the group that the Boilermakers possess. The fact that you have two trees inside, Zach Eady and Travion Williams, who play the game in different ways but are able to have success and coexist. The fact that you are able to have a sacrifice made by Travion Williams coming in off the bench says a lot. The fact that you have an NBA lottery pick on your team, something that we don't always think Purdue basketball lottery pick. That is what Jaden Ivey is. He is absolutely sensational and will unveil our top five consensus players in a little bit here on Field of 68 After Dark. You have four different guys that could at any point hit three or four three-pointers in a game. And if you start hitting perimeter shots, it's over. It's curtains. And this team's more than capable of doing it. This is Purdue's best opportunity to win a national championship under Matt Painter. It is there for the taking, and it is clear that Michigan and Illinois are not as good as we thought that they would be. That doesn't mean that those two teams couldn't get it right, but Purdue's already got it right, and they're not a very good team. They're not even a great team. They are a historic group, potentially, potentially on the offensive end of the floor. We could talk about this Purdue team as being one of the all-time great offensive teams in the history of college basketball. I think that's fair for sure. I mean, you just look at the different gears Jaden Ivey can switch to. We saw that in the Hall of Fame classic games, uh, the MTE. There was points where he just turned the game, he turned the game sideways just by himself being able to make big plays, getting into the paint, finding shooters, creating for himself. I feel like that's something we didn't see a lot by him last year. He wasn't the big time creator for other people, but I feel like that's really what's going to boost his NBA stock too, that he's able to make plays for himself and for others. I, I just think with the way that this Purdue team is set up, it there are so many different ways that they can beat you and it doesn't require three or four guys to all be playing on their A game every single night because it might be, it might be Edie's night. It might be Travion coming off the bench and hitting 20 and 10 Sasha Stefanovic, which is typically the fourth or fifth guy that you mentioned on this Purdue roster. He can hit four or five threes in a single half. And it, it's just a roster that is so dynamic in the sense of, the ways that they can beat you offensively. And Matt Painter always does a good job with the defensive side as well. So I, I don't think there are many concerns in that sense, but it's just such an elite offense. It can be beaten in so many ways. And Caleb first is another guy who's stepped up. Um, and I don't think the expectations were that high with Travion and Edie coming back that first would be a role player, if not a starter. And he's, he's done just that. And it's been an overpowering offense thus far. All right, tonight on the show, we talk about our biggest surprises here. Biggest surprise for you, Eli? 
I think for me, it's Arizona. I, I think with Tommy Lloyd coming over from Gonzaga and the way that he's picked up this roster and done just such a, a wonderful job with it has, has been especially impressive to go from an Arizona team that has missed the NCAA tournament a handful of these past few years to now in year one under Lloyd being seen as a, a national title contender. And I, I think that's rightfully so with how efficient they've been on both ends. And I think for me, this is such an unselfish team, the way that Kirk Risa has led from the point. Uh, his assist rate is off the charts. And I believe if I'm not mistaken, Arizona leads the entire nation in assist rate. We know that how they spread the ball around. And it's it's especially impressive because of this team's height. I mean, every everyone in the lineup is 6'3", 6'4", 6'7". Christian Coloco's down at 7 feet, 7'1". So they're not only imposing in their size, but just the way that they, they just play the game and uh, defensively leading the nation in effective field goal percentage defense. To have that type of balance on both ends, that is a, a very scary combination. I think Tommy Lloyd, just with his repertoire and, and his background with some of these international guys, the fit has just been like a puzzle piece. He's just, just done a wonderful job with this program. Well, and they're 13th in Ken Palm adjusted defensive efficiency. Uh, the, the fact that that length translates to their ability to guard uh, and guard well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have length. That doesn't mean that, that you're a great defensive team. There's a difference there. And I think for Arizona, what we're seeing with Tommy Lloyd, guys, is you're seeing, the first off, the talent that, that he was left with um, at Arizona. Look. There's been no denial that, that Sean Miller was bringing in high-level talent, that the Wildcats had that talent. What Tommy Lloyd's done is he's kind of put a spin on it that I really like, Sean. And I, I think Arizona will only get more competent in, let's face it, a weaker Pac-12. That, that to me, sometimes if you're beating up each other all during your league, there are times when in March you're, you're not as good as you could be because you've had to go through that gauntlet. Arizona has a chance here to be right there as number two in the Pac-12. And with the way that they defend, they're going to win a lot of games solely off that because the Pac-12 also is extremely limited offensively. Some of these teams really are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no question. And I was big on Arizona coming into the season. I liked them quite a bit. I had them ranked uh, but one of the big reasons was because they have legitimate NBA prospects. Azulis Tubelas, Benedict Matherin could be a lottery pick. They're, those are NBA guys. But I didn't even take into account Christian Coloco making the jump he's made. I mean, he always had the potential. But I didn't think he'd be a 16-point-per-game, 8-rebound-per-game, 3-block-per-game guy this season. I mean, it's it's obvious just watching him this year compared to last year. He just has so much better feel for the game. He's making shots inside. Uh, he's always been a really good defender. He's athletic. He's long. He does everything you want from a big man, and he's starting to generate some NBA draft bu- buzz too. So there's just a ton of talent on this Arizona team. All of their guys can defend. Dalen Terry's a pre- uh, pretty good unsung hero for this team. He's not going to be the best scorer. He's not going to average double figures, but he can defend one through four, and he's going to put really good effort on the defensive end. Yeah, I'm unfortunate to see Arizona's Pac-12 opener against Washington get postponed due to the, the COVID issues with that one. They will take on Oregon State at Oregon State on Sunday, not the same Oregon State Beavers that made that incredible NCAA tournament run. Uh, Sean, you brought up Iowa State as your biggest surprise, and you explained why. So I'm actually going to shift things here to you, Sean Paul. 
the biggest disappointment in your mind? I'm going to stick in the Pac-12 here and go with Oregon. They just haven't looked that impressive. The offense doesn't look like it's flowing at all, and I think Dana Altman will get it get it together. I think they'll get things rolling, but they just don't have great depth, and the transfers haven't been all that good. Quincy Guerrier is a guy I thought could have been first-team all-conference, but he's really struggled this season. Davion Harmon's efficiency numbers aren't great. Will Richardson started getting it going again last game, but I thought he could be a conference player of the year kind of contender, and he just hasn't been that guy. So the players just that I thought could take that jump haven't really taken that jump this season. I think they'll get it going near Pac-12 play. I think things will start to figure themselves out because the talent's there, the coaching's there, so I do believe they'll still be an NCAA tournament-caliber team, but they haven't looked that way so far. But thankfully for them, they don't. They haven't taken any bad losses on their resume yet, so that's kind of keeping them afloat in the NCAA tournament conversation. Maybe they're a bubble team right now, but not suffering any by-game losses currently will benefit them come March. Sure. You know, here's my biggest disappointment. It's Michigan. I mean, last night to just get railroaded by North Carolina, a North Carolina team that is good, probably second best in the in the ACC. I think we would agree on that. But guys, like, to only score 51 points against North Carolina, the offensive issues for Michigan last night were offensive. I mean, they got blown off the floor. And what I look at with this team is I think a lot of people thought that Devontae Jones would be able to come into this program and actually be an upgrade from Mike Smith. That has not been the case. In fact, I think Michigan would take Mike Smith back in a heartbeat right now. Musa Diabate is going to be an extremely talented player. Like his, his raw talent, his athleticism, his explosiveness, it's there. And last night he leads them in scoring. But uh, what is wrong with Hunter Dickinson right now? Uh, he, he to have an off night against North Carolina, like Hunter Dickinson should never only score four points in a game. That should never happen. They just look out of sync and they look like a team that offensively is trying to figure itself out because frankly, they're not getting enough on the perimeter from guys outside of Eli Brooks. I, yeah, I like Caleb. The- he- no, you go ahead. Okay, I, I was just going to say, I thought the opening night matchup against Buffalo was almost a good summation of where Michigan is at as a team because we saw the Wolverines go up around 18 or 20 points in that game. We also saw them give up a lead where Buffalo clinged to, I think, within a four or five-point deficit. Yeah. And national title contenders just don't do that. When they have a chance to put teams away, they're able to put teams away. And I, I, I agree with you. I think the offense comes in spurts, which is not something that you want. I love Diabate. I think he's going to be an absolute star, and I think he could be even featured more in this offense. But as you said, a, a player of Hunter Dickinson's caliber it should be consistently finishing in double figures as he was as a freshman. And I just think there are, there are issues that, that uh, present themselves at the point guard position. And, and that was one of the main questions heading in. And it was the same thing as, as last season as well with Mike Smith making the jump from a mid-major up to, up to Michigan. And the same case applied to Devontae Jones, who's now making that jump. And I, I think this team is going to be just fine, but I do think it's a fair assessment to say they've been a disappointment so far. Who's the second best team in the Big Ten, Sean? For me, I'm going to go Indiana. I know they lost the other day. Wow. But I, I like Indiana a lot. I mean, that they did lose at Syracuse, so that could 
change my thoughts a little bit, but I think they're fine. Trace Jackson Davis is playing like one of the best players in the country. 43 points the other day against Marshall. He just looked dominant all season, almost a 70% field goal percentage. He's just looked so improved this year. And the biggest thing for Indiana with me is they've really struggled shooting the three ball the past few years. Parker Stewart, Miller Cop, Xavier Johnson, those three transfer additions, they have Indiana shooting 37% from outside this year. The improved three-point shooting paired with how good Trace Jackson Davis has been, they have to turn they have to limit the turnovers a little bit, but they have potential to go really far in the NCAA tournament. All right, we will get back to that question uh, in a little bit, but we are going to welcome in our guest tonight. And he has led Norfolk State University to some history. It is great to be joined by the head coach of Norfolk State, Robert Jones, is with us tonight. Last year, this school uh, winning an NCAA tournament game over Appalachian State. And this season, they've started the year 9-1. and one. It's the best start to a season by a MEAC team in the conference's history. Robert, thanks for taking the time to join us this evening. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's great to have you. The 9-1 and one start, six wins over Division I teams. What is it about your group that has allowed you to achieve success? Well, I think the biggest thing with us is that we have some good versatility. Um, you know, we have some good size, so we can play big, we can play small. And uh, we've really been playing some defense. You know, even at some times, I feel like that we're not playing a lick of defense. I guess the numbers <laughs> the numbers say otherwise. You know, I think we're 12th in the country with field goal percentage defense right now. And, you know, we got some other good defensive categories uh, that we rank pretty high at. But, um, it's, you know, it's been an amazing run so far. You know, we, we did lose four starters from last year. So to start off 9-1 and one has, has been tremendous for this group. In, in losing the four starters, Coach, what do you think has allowed this team to, to gain that camaraderie and still be able to tighten things up and, and maintain this, this level of play despite the roster turnover? Well, I think that we uh, were able to put together, you know, some good recruits, and they, they're, they're all buying in. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is, I, I've said this before to, to the team, that I still don't think that we're 100% bought in. You know, I think that it's still, like, probably 90%, you know, bought in. There's still, you know, you always got a couple guys that are still on the fence, and you got to give them the real them in. But, um, you know, I tell them all the time, too, is, like, you know, if you can't buy in with 9-1, then I don't know when you're going to gonna buy in. So, um, you know, either going to buy in or buy out, I guess. But, um, you know, I think that once we get to that 100% point, which I think we will, you know, very shortly, um, I think that we'll, uh, we'll be even a better team. And honestly, we haven't got a chance to practice. I mean, we've played 10 games so far since the season started. You know, I think we play. I know we have the most Division One, most wins, you know, at nine of anybody in the country currently. But, um, you know, we did play a lot of games so far, too, you know, with another one Saturday. Coach, so you were on staff for the 2012 Norfolk State NCAA tournament win over Missouri but now as the head coach you made the tournament again last year like John Fanta said you won in the first four against App State what's the difference between being an assistant on the 2012 team and being the head coach on the 2021 team uh I mean 2021 teams feel like it's more of you know your accomplishment you know I think as an assistant you do feel a sense of accomplishment because you know you probably recruited some of the guys you have a, a great connection with those guys and things like that but at the same time, you know, the name on that on that 2012 team is Coach Anthony Evans, you know, but uh, the 2021 team is, is Robert Jones. So, you know, you, you definitely feel a different sense of, a, of, a, of accomplishment by getting the team back to the tournament um, under your leadership totally. So I, I do feel like um, it, it, it was definitely a greater sense of accomplishment and hopefully we can do it again in this year. 
Robert, let's go beyond basketball a little bit. Uh, <laughs> okay. talking, about, talking about your journey. At one point, you were doing bookings, assisting with that for 50 cent? <laughs> yeah, I was. I was. Back in, back in 2002, 2003, well, 2002 to 2005, um, I was working with uh, Mike Lighty from Violator Management, who was his management company at that time. And um, I used to help, help set up college tours and things like that uh, for 50 Cent and the whole, uh, you know, his, his, his whole crew, his whole hip hop crew G-Unit at the time. So um, I did that for, for about three years and, and then still dibbled and dabbled a little bit after that, but really three years um, solid that I did that. And then, like I said, here and there, I would still help out when, when needed. But um, I was in charge of the, the concerts at my school, SUNY New Paltz. So, um, you know, I met those guys through, through that. And uh, it just turned into like uh, entrepreneurship and, you know, being a subcontractor, working with 50 and the rest of the, the, the G unit crew. Do you have a great 50 story? Oh man. It's, it's a lot of stories with when that crew, you know, that was when they went the the hottest I'm saying some, some stories I know I can't, I can't share on air right now, but um, there was a, a, a you know, a, a man I'm trying to think of, of the best one. Um, I remember the rock, the, when it was like a rock the mic tour, I think it was called. Sure. And, um, you know, and Jay-Z was a headliner, but 50 Cent was so was so hot at the time that it was Jay-Z's tour, but people would leave after 50 Cent got on it. And 50 used to always be like, you know, that I'm the man, I'm the man, you know, and stuff like that. So, um, you know, and, and, you know, this is Jay-Z, you know, the, probably the biggest rapper in the world. But at that time, he wasn't the biggest rapper in the world at that time. It was definitely 50 Cent. So it's amazing to see what 50 has done, you know, transitioning out of music into now, um, TV with stars and all his series and, and things like that. So um, I guess we both kind of transition out of music a little bit now into different things. I'm just doing, you know, basketball. What, what would you say led to that transition from, from working in that sort of concert venue arena to now working in basketball arenas? Is there something that clicked or something that inspired you to, to try a new career path? Um, actually, my son. Well, my son was born in 2007. Um, so even though I worked, you know, kind of exclusively with, with Violator Management and G-Unit 2002 to 2005, I was still just doing my own concerts and, and basically a party promoter at, at that time and also a high school um, basketball coach at, at St. Mary's um, High School. But, you know, being a, in, that, in that field, when you're not the entertainer, you know, you're not the super rich person, you know, you, you, know, you get, you know, uh, 10% of the booking fees or, you know, if you do a show, you get ticket sales and, and things like that. It was kind of up and down. You know, some months you might make a lot of money. And some months, if, if there was no tour dates, you wouldn't make anything. So I, I kind of rolled the dice when my son was born and um, realized that I needed a more stable income. And, um, you know, I always said I wanted to be either, either in sports or entertainment. And I've been fortunate enough to be in, in, in both. So um, Anthony Evans, he got the job here. He actually was my assistant coach um, at SUNY New Paltz. He coached me at SUNY New Paltz. So when he got the job at um, Norfolk as the interim, he asked me to come down and be on the staff. And uh, once again, rolling the dice because – interim year you know anything can go wrong with an interim year anything can go wrong so I'm transporting basically a newborn from New York City down to Virginia a foreign land and um you know having all work out uh and you know we had great success under him and then you know he was able to move on to FIU and things like that and then I was elevated and now I, you know ever since I've been um the basketball coach at Norfolk State University you guys won two games in the Chris Paul HBCU tip-off. What was that whole experience like for you and the team to play in that kind of event? It's the first one that he's done, so uh, you guys got to first look at it. 
it was a great experience. You know, um, I think that these guys strive to be on that level, you know, NBA level and, and for them to, to basically get NBA treatment for a weekend because, you know, everything was laid out. I mean, the meals were probably a little, probably a little better than what we normally would eat, you know, and things like that. Um, the hotel was nice. The, the locker room was way different than any college locker room that we've been in. I mean, it was a locker room suite, you know, with everything in there. So and, and we play some, you know, obviously, you know, high majors and things like that. We never get a, a visit a locker room like that. So, um, you know, it was uh, just tremendous for the for the guys and just to play in the NBA arena for the guys. I think the whole experience and, of course, having a, a, a future Hall of Famer talk to them and, and be around. And he actually sat on the sideline next to our team. So, like, you know, you're getting in and out the game, you pass it to the Hall of Famer, you know, he might throw a couple words at you and things like that. So um, I think the experience is going to be uh, invaluable. And, of course, playing two games on national TV, you know, you get a chance to to showcase what many might not see and might not understand. And, and now the whole world gets a chance to see. Like, even our kid Chris Bankston, um, we had a couple NBA teams now reach out, you know, about him because of his performance. And, you know, I think that he is an NBA player. I think that, um, you know, he's the next Kyle O'Quinn. From um from our from our from our school if he keeps his mind straight and keeps developing, but the whole world got a chance to see um that he could be the next Kyle O'Quinn um from from Norfolk State so uh, that was tremendous I mean you, that's invaluable right there. Really, sorry, really yeah. is, Robert, and I think I I just love that that event was put on, um and and I feel like it's it's a step. I feel like there's a lot of steps that need to still be taken. I, I was talking earlier this week with Ed Cooley. Uh, the head coach of Providence College, yeah. about black coaches. Mm-hmm. And the fact, the fact that black coaches have not been given the respect, the reward that white coaches have always been given in the, in the history of college basketball. And he, he's tried to do a lot of work with the NABC, just raising awareness, raising what can we do to take steps forward. So, as a head coach at an HBCU, as a head coach in the MEAC, what's your message to college basketball and to people out there about what needs to happen for progress to continue? I think awareness. You know, I think, you know, an event like Chris Paul when we're on national TV, something like this when we're on a national forum, you know, a lot of times people say they don't know who the HBCU coaches are or things like that, but we don't get invited to things like this. You know, we don't get invited to national TV. So if you if we get invited more and included more, then everyone would know, you know, we'll know who we are and they'll know our players and things like that. And, you know, the thing I say is that we play a good brand of basketball. It's not just, you know, HBCU, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean, basketball. You know, we play a good brand of, of basketball. You know, even, you know, I guess the most valuable mid-major poll that's out there with College Insider. We're number 23 in the country, you know, at, at nine and one. So we're just as good as any mid-major, you know, across the country. And people need to see that. And, and understand that. And, I, and the thing, too, I say um, is that, you know, I know last year there was a hiring cycle of a lot of African-American coaches and things like that. But the thing I say, there was no HBCU coaches hired, you know. So there, there's like a, almost like a triple standard. You know, there's, a, there's a, like a double standard of kind of being an African-American coach. And then there's a triple standard of being an African-American HBCU coach. But I think that, you know, even this year, you know, I'll speak for my program. You know, we've beat six conferences, you know, you know so far. Um, so we, we can play and we can coach with any conference in the country and hopefully people will get a chance to see that and understand that. And, um, you know, hopefully there'll be more opportunities for uh, HBCU coaches. And I think a lot of times HBCU coaches, you know, I think it's a myth that every HBCU coach is not trying to leave, you know, anything like that. But I do think that it should be more of an opportunity, you know, out there for, 
for people to make a decision whether they want to stay or or leave. And I think that's what has to change. Coach, on the on the same token with HBCUs, uh, both of the conferences, the MIAC and SWAC, won NCAA tournament games this past year for the first time ever. What was this experience like for you and your program, getting to the NCAA tournament, playing in front of the big lights and winning games? Uh, what was that experience like for you for the first time, and, and what did your players take away from that experience? Uh, it was amazing, you know, honestly. It was, it was you know, NCAA is the pinnacle of college basketball, you know, whether it's the first four or the last four, whatever you want to call it, you you played an NCAA tournament game and you won the game. And um, that's what we were able to do, you know, against Appalachian State. Um, you know, it was probably a little stickier than what we wanted it to be. But, um, you know, we won that game and then we were able to advance. You know, we were able to advance our name into the next, you know, part of the bracket. And that's what you want to do, survive and advance in March. So that's an experience that's going to be invaluable. You know, we did a team meeting earlier this year and um, we asked them about what's, um, you know, some of their lifelong memory, like their, their greatest moment in their lives and their worst moment too, you know. And for many of those kids, the greatest moment of their life was the NCAA tournament, you know. So that's, and, and, and it's amazing because, you know, I'm obviously older than those guys. So I'm thinking like NCAA tournament is a, a, a huge moment, but, you know, the birth of my son and things like that is like moments that are probably a little bigger than NCAA tournament for me. But for those young guys who are 21 years old, they haven't been through a lot of life. So like NCAA tournament is the biggest thing that they've, you know, uh, achieved or accomplished in, in life for, for, for many of those, um, many of those kids. So um, just to get there to win a game and, and to move on and, and stay a little longer, you know, and things like that, that was tremendous. I mean, it felt like 2012 again, even though 2012 was a whole different dynamic with um, us beating Missouri and, you know, that being a huge, huge upset and all that stuff like that. Um, it was, still was a lot of fanfare behind us even beating Appalachian State, you know, honestly. You know, so it, it was cool. And, and I think once you drink from that cup, you want to keep drinking from that cup as much as possible. Yeah, you guys beating Missouri in 2012. Was there like a feeling going into that game after shoot around uh, into warmups where you guys like, OK, we can do this? Was that the feeling that you guys had going into that game as big time underdogs? I mean, when you're a 15 seed like that, not not many people expect you to win. Well, the, the, the thing that I say with that is that. Um, I was the associate head coach at the time, obviously, you know, and um, I told Coach Evans that I wanted that scout, no matter who we played, you know, I wanted that scout. And people don't believe me. Only people who are in the program truly know. From the moment we were selected on select, Selection Sunday, I said we were going to win that game. You know, it was, it was no doubt in my mind that we were going to win that game because the thing was, I felt like Missouri couldn't match up with us. I mean, we, they have four guards and an undersized big in Ricardo Rattler. You know, with Kyle O'Quinn, I knew we were going to have the best player on the floor at all times, you know, no, no shout, you know, to Kim English or Denman or those other guys, but I knew Kyle O'Quinn could play. I mean, the rest of the world found out he could play later, but I knew that he was the best, going to be the best player. And then, I mean, we had the, we had the, the advantage down low all game, you know, it was, they, they never double teamed, never did anything. And then also their style of play with four guards and one big kind of bothered the high majors and things like that. Because, you know, the, you're not used to, used to the 6, 10, 7 feet guys running around. So, you know, their four guard style bothered them, bothered high majors. But us, we have played against four guards all year, you know, in one big. So it was a better quality guard in Missouri, you know, but we have played against that style all year. So the styles, you know, styles make fights. And we knew that this style and our style would, would clash. I think that we would come out on top, and we did. And as you saw, it's not like we held the ball. We won 86-84. So it wasn't those situations that we holding the ball, trying to – by possessions, we just played the way we were supposed to play. Robert, you have brought it up a couple of times in our conversation 
being a dad. Yeah. Uh, what's it like being a working father? Oh, it's tough. You know, um, you know, we just came off the road just, just, just now. You know, we're on the road for a week, and um, you know, you miss your, you miss your, you miss your son. I mean, you know, he, he's a, he's a basketball player himself. Um, he's an eighth grader. He's coming up through the ranks. So I, I missed his first JV game. Um, and, you know, I'm going to miss probably the next, I think, three games that he's going to play. Um, so, you know, that's tough as, as it is. But, uh, you know, hey, you got to do what you got to do. And I think he understands at this point because, he, you know, he is older. Um, he just turned 14 recently. So he just, you know, he's older. He understands that dad has to do what he has to do because this is how, you know, the lights stay on and, you know, he gets the sneakers that he wants and things like that. So, you know, yeah, I might miss a couple games, but, um, you know, I'll be there on the back end. And, and once things settle down, I'll be able to catch pretty much all his games. Before we let you go, Robert, and it's been great to be joined by Norfolk State head coach Robert Jones tonight on Field of 68 after dark. You talked about making that move into basketball, leaving the music industry, taking your son with you and, and jumping into basketball. To that 20 to 23, 24-year-old kid who might have that dream of working in basketball in some capacity, but they're trying to find their way, what's your biggest piece of advice to them? I think the biggest piece of advice that I can say is just, just stay the course. You know, that's something that you really want to do. Um, just stay the course because everybody's path is different. Don't keep score with people. It's the same thing I tell my son, even with basketball himself, you know, there might be people that might be better than you right now, but if you stay the course and you keep working, you're going to end up being better than them in the long run, you know? So just stay the course. And that, my, my course is different. You know, I was a volunteer assistant at division three. I coached in high school. I coached AAU. I was assistant coach for six years. And then I finally got my break, you know, to be a division one head coach. Some people play division one basketball and they get their break right away. The next year, that's who they graduate. Some people go to the NBA. As soon as they finish playing the NBA, they get their break right away. So my path was different. Then a lot of other people, I mean, I had to work for, I had to do music, you know, promote shows and things like that, you know, and, and stuff. So um, my path was different than, than a lot of people. And I think everybody's path is different. So never, you know, say, oh, well, this guy got that job and this guy did that. Everybody's path is different. And, and you know, what, whatever God wants you to have, he's going he's gonna to have. So just stay the course. From 50 Cent to the field of 68 last year. To nine and one this season, best start by a MEAC school in the league's history. It's the head coach of the Norfolk State Spartans, Robert Jones. Robert, thank you so much for the time. Good luck here as as the year forges on. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you. We appreciate you. That's Robert Jones, the head coach at Norfolk State. What a start to the season for the Spartans. An amazing story. And uh, we appreciate Coach taking the time. I got to tell you guys. You know, one of the special things about covering this sport is you get to really garner relationships, garner connections. And for that guy right there, he, he, you heard him say he was a D3 volunteer. Now he's the head coach of a team that has made history in the MEAC that could make the NCAA tournament again. I think Robert Jones, buy stock if you haven't already, because uh, this guy's still only getting started, in my humble opinion. It's, oh yeah, definitely. It's, yeah, it's it's really cool to hear the different environments that he's been in throughout his professional career. To being in the small high school arenas or high school gyms, AAU gyms, to being at a Fifty Cent show where he's a promoter, to then being back down to the low levels of coaching, and then being back to the NCAA tournament when everyone knows Norfolk State's name. 
it's it's pretty inspiring to hear his story and how he's managed to make this all work as a father it's it's uh it's really cool to see what norfolk state has accomplished and will continue to accomplish under his lead so let's forge on here we were asked earlier for our consensus top five players in college basketball in that national player of the year race uh and here on after dark we're gonna bring it to you now rob doster said he was gonna take all our suggestions and form a consensus top five uh but we had some rich debate uh about drew timmy and paulo bancaro uh we talked about Jaden ivy in this there are a couple other candidates that are on the rankings the best player in the country, Eli, is? I'm going to have to go Jaden Ivey right now. And wow. it might not, might not be necessarily the, the popular pick here, but I think all of the preseason hype that he was receiving, I think he's lived up to it, and maybe even then some. One of the biggest question marks about his game heading into the season was his lack of perimeter shooting. He was extremely inefficient last season. We did see him turn it on the last five, ten games. And his three-point shooting has gone from around 25% to now above 43%. And that is a, that's an enormous leap. That takes you from being undrafted to being a potentially lottery pick. And we've seen that come up quite a bit. He's been such a focal part of the Purdue offense. And you watch him play, and he's athletic. He has this chip on his shoulder, this knack of getting baskets. Uh, he's a plus defender as well. And now that he's He's rounding out his game. He's continuing to develop. I, I love his upside. I think he's already proven what he's capable of and, and will continue to do so. And, and, of course, that's no knock to the other guys on the list, Paolo Boncaro, uh, Drew Timmy, both extremely worthy candidates. It'll be a fascinating player of the year race, but for my money right now, I'd have to select Jaden Ivey. Yeah, I'm going with Drew Timmy, uh, preseason national player of the year. I don't think he's really done anything to not be the national player of the year currently. I guess Bancaro and Ivy definitely are in that conversation, but I'm going to stick with Timmy for now because I still think Gonzaga is the best team in the country, and Timmy could average 20 and 10. I feel like if they're ranked number one, he's doing that. I, it would be tough for me not to give it to him. I'm going to go with Paolo Bancaro because when he is fully healthy on the floor in a game, he's the best player on the court in said game. This kid is a game changer in every way attacking the rim flawless defensively NBA level. And he's the closest thing to a professional that we have in the game right now. And so I'm going to place my bet on that. Gonzaga might be the best team in the country, but Drew Timmy's a little bit slow footed. Drew Timmy sometimes just by virtue of, of the way that he plays, he could actually slow down the pace of the game and the game is played at his pace. So he might be, sometimes that, it doesn't matter that he's a little slower. He just plays that way, and then you have to play that way. Duke has the head-to-head result over Gonzaga. And the reason why they found an arm's length in that first half, and it was only an arm, I mean, it wasn't much. They were only up by three at the break. Paolo Bancaro played the half of his life. He put everything on display. It's the best half I've seen by a player this college basketball season, the best single half. He was that good. I think it's close. I think it's great for college basketball. I think if you pick Jaden Ivey or Drew Timmy on a given day, this could change. That's a good thing for our sport. That's a good thing for our sport. But man, if you put 10 players in front of me and you put these three among them, I'm picking Paolo Bancaro as the best player in college basketball. 
The funny thing is, the best player in college basketball doesn't always win National Player of the Year. <laughs> right, Eli? I mean, it's true. Like, Or sometimes, Eli, we get the most hyped player doesn't always end up winning the National Player of the Year. I think back a couple years ago, Trey Young mania was in the air, and Jalen Brunson ended up winning the National Player of the Year award. It, I mean, it's, it's true, and I think a lot of this runs off of – you heard in the college football side, statement, performances, statement, wins, those types of things. And I think it, it, a lot of it falls down to who's in the spotlight and how do they perform in that spotlight. And that generates headlines and that generates our opinions of how we feel about these particular players. But as you said, I think it, oftentimes if you were to wake up one morning, you'd know who the number one player in college basketball is. And right now, I think the fact that we all pick three different players that means it's going to be a pretty fun race here the next handful of months. And um, I don't think you can go wrong with any of the three, but I do think in large part, it comes down to some of these statement moments. We had Paolo's moment against Gonzaga and we'll continue to see these other players uh, make their way throughout the season as well. All right, I'm going to do a fun one here. I'm throwing a total curveball to Sean Paul. Sean Paul, you are going to unveil to us the mid-major player of Ooh. November. The mid-major player of the month is... It's a really good question. It's a curveball I wasn't thinking about, so I'm going to have to take a second to think about this. Um, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go Jamal Kane from Oakland. Marquette transfer, he's been big time. Oakland has been the best team in the Horizon League and it's not even debatable so far. They were picked six in the preseason. Kane's averaging 22 a game, 11 rebounds. He's been their best player by a pretty easy margin, uh, and he's looked like one of the best players in mid-major basketball. And that's just an example right there. The high-major to mid-major transfer can be just as valuable as a mid-major to high-major transfer because there's only 13 scholarship spots on every team. Uh, th- this year's a little different, I guess, with the COVID year and all that. But most well, times it's... Wait a minute. What about Fardaz Amat from Utah Valley? Hey. <laughs> He's Valley. up there. He's up there. But uh, what, it, what it comes down to, like, you look at Jamal Kane, you look at Kobe McEwen, two guys who played real minutes at the Big East level last year. You're familiar with uh, those guys very well. They go down. McEwen's been one of the best players at the mid-major level at Weber State this year. So is Jamal Kane at Oakland. Yeah. So... We talk about the mid-major guys going up. How about the high-major guys that end up going down? Because they usually perform pretty well. Hmm. I, I think the one thing to tag along there, which is kind of fascinating, is how I approach some of these transfer portal discussions is a lot of these players who come from high-majors who are either at the NIT level or below, say it's a program that's maybe four or five games below 500 in their respective high-major league, if they transfer to a top-two, top-three team in a mid-major conference – their likelihood of going to the NCAA tournament is actually greater despite mm-hmm. playing in a smaller school and their numbers will probably increase as a result as well. So right. I, think, I think there's a lot of value in some of these players transferring down, so to speak, but also having more opportunity that way. Yeah. Well, yes. That's, that's a good point. It is a great point. And you know what folks, that's why we're seeing upsets become reality. It's why you're only going to see more Abilene Christian and Oral Roberts stories. Okay, mm-hmm. that that's what we're in for here. Mm-hmm. You know, the, there's no longer there's no longer as large of a gap in on paper talent in college basketball. That from the 40th team to the, even the 120th team, there's not as large of a gap as maybe there once was in this sport. It, it, there's truly a parity level. 
And this year, like Gonzaga and Baylor were so far and away better than everybody last year. If you just look at, at all different types of numbers, they've suggested. And then you look at the two teams and it was fitting that they met for the national championship. And if Baylor doesn't go on that COVID pause, we might even be talking about them being even better than like we, we actually do. Um, but you know what? Like what I love about this sport right now is, is that the buy game concept is totally watered down so much so that there are coaches out there who are like, I don't know if I want to give this school a $90,000 check because guess what? I'm only a nine point favorite here. And if my team's not hitting perimeter shots, I'm going to lose. And to me, it's not that big of an upset because my team's not playing well right now. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of examples of that, like lower and high major teams that have struggled this year, like Georgia, they lost to Wofford, but Wofford was favored in the game. I mean, like that, that's pretty interesting to see. And then you look at like UMKC blowing out Missouri. Like there's been a lot of examples like that this season, Oregon State's lost a handful of them. So some of the uh, high major teams that are near the bottom end of their conference, they're falling to a lot of these mid-major teams this year. And we've seen that quite a lot. Interesting stuff there on the concept of mid-majors and the gap in college basketball. A uh, couple of scores here tonight that we do want to get into. Utah stayed up 25-20 to 20 on St. Mary's. That game's 90 seconds into the second half. Uh, what are we doing? We throw the game back to 1967? St. Mary's basketball. Got to love it. And is there a guy, though, Randy Bennett, what St. Mary's continues to do, the level of consistency – that the Gales are able to pull off. I was super impressed with their performance out in Vegas. And and I look at them, guys, and I see a couple of really interesting pieces. Uh, Tonight, it's Alex Dukas, who's a a six-foot-seven, kind of a lengthy wing for them that makes things happen. And then you've got, uh, is it Matias Tass? Sean, make sure I'm right on that. Tass. Tass. Matias Tass has been an impactful player, too. Like, to me, the WCC doesn't get anywhere near enough credit. And, and we're starting to see it get some love. But that league is a really intriguing league as conference play starts. Like, there truly is um, less of a gap between Gonzaga and maybe the second-best team in the WCC on their best night, BYU on their best night, than there might be between Duke and the second-best team in the Atlantic Coast Conference. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, you look at BYU, they're really good. But San Francisco, I mean, they're top 40 in Ken Palm. They're undefeated at the moment. Uh, I I spoke to Todd Golden for my mid-major top 25 reveal this week. His team's really good. I mean, he added a lot of transfers for the front court. Ewan Masalski from San Diego. Zane Meeks from Nevada, who's only played one game, but he's going to be back pretty soon here. Patrick Depay who on on a, on paper isn't averaging a ton of points, but he's a really good defender, so he adds a lot to the team. Gabe Stefanini, a really good guard that complements Jamari Bouye and Khalil Shabazz very well. So that's a deep team. They shoot a lot of threes. Their defense is improved. They play fast. If I wouldn't want to be matched up with that team in the NCAA tournament if they make it, because they can win a couple games. There's no question about it. Yeah, the, the WCC is especially deep this season, and it'll be interesting to see how the bid situation sorts out for this league. I do think... There will probably be a team or two that gets nipped from its current at-large contention status just by just by nature of playing the WCC. But I think the way that the conference has performed outside of their league has been pretty admirable. And some of these um, away games that they've been able to secure, I thought St. Mary's performed especially well. 
in Vegas at the Maui Invitational. That defense is for real, and I love how their bigs can shoot the basketball, and I love how their guards attack. Logan Johnson is just a ferocious competitor, and he was even asked after uh, the the title game loss to Wisconsin just about the WCC at large, and and you could tell he has this sort of fire in his eyes talking about how the WCC deserves more credit. And there was a point in time where I believe there were top five, top six teams in this league were a combined 26 and one to start the season. So that's a big deal when a lot of these games are by games and they're playing away from home. So it's a mid-major conference to watch. And it speaks to our earlier conversation just about the, the very slim margin between high major and mid-major leagues this season. All right, speaking of one of those mid-majors, how about the Liberty Flames tonight? 66-45, to 45, Liberty beats Missouri. Uh, not that big of a surprise that Liberty won this game, but they won the game by 21 points. And put some respect on Richie McKay's name, okay? Liberty has now taken down eight Power 5 opponents under him. Uh, they beat Mississippi State, if you remember, 2019 NCAA Tournament. This program, though, since 2018 is 5-5 five and five against the Southeastern Conference. Sean, your reaction to Liberty uh, pulling off that 21-point victory and the Flames' potential as the season deepens? I think it's a win they definitely needed because they've had some moments this year where they've struggled. They were struggling to make shots a little bit in the uh, A-Sun Mac Challenge. They lost to Manhattan and Iona. Uh, the Manhattan loss was a big-time stunner. I wasn't surprised they lost to Iona because they're both two teams that are really solid. But Liberty fell out of the mid-major top 25 the last couple of weeks. And I think one of the biggest reasons is uh, you lost two really key players. Chris Parker, who was your point guard, which allowed Darius McGee to play off the ball where he was able to come off screens and be open from three. He's been on the ball a lot more this year, so he's not able to come off screens and hit threes like that because they don't really have a true point guard if McGee's not going to be the guy. And then they lost one of their best defenders in Elijah Cuffey uh, as, as just a really good wing 3 and D guy. So he's gone. They had a lot to replace, so I think that's a, that's a big thing for them. I still think they can win a game in the tournament if they get there because Darius McGee's starting to get it going. But the A-Sun is a lot better this year. You look at Jacksonville State coming in from the OVC, Eastern Kentucky coming in from the OVC. They played a tight game with West Virginia the other day. They won at Milwaukee a few weeks ago. So this is a pretty solid Eastern Kentucky team. Florida Gulf Coast looks very improved. Tavian Dunbarton, the Duquesne transfer, has looked really good. Kevin Samuel has looked solid. Uh, There's a lot of talent in the A-Sun this year. It's not Liberty's League to win like it has been in past years, but I wouldn't want to face them in the NCAA tournament, that's for sure. So Liberty wins that game by 21, and they go to 4-3 and three on the season. All right, it's time for tip-ins. We've got 10 minutes and change to go. Tip-ins is when we go rapid fire around the country. Your thoughts. I'm going to go to tomorrow. Eli, you're talking about eighth-ranked Kansas taking on St. John's. This game's going to be played at UBS Arena. It's a brand-new building. It's where the New York Islanders play, so it's not the Garden. It's not a Carnesecca. This is a UBS arena. You have Ochai Baji on one side, Julian Champagny on the other. Red Storm only has one loss, but they have, they've struggled. They've struggled. NJIT took them to overtime. They struggled with St. Francis Brooklyn, but different game here. The fact is they've won. Now you face Kansas, a Kansas team that did lose to Dayton last week, bounced back against Iona. St. John's, Kansas, what determines the winner of this game and who wins this game? I, I think St. John's has to find a way to slow down Oshag Baji. I think he's been capable of some pretty admirable performances this season, averaging upwards of 20 points per game. But this is a big moment for St. John's. And I think that 
Uh, a lot of people don't quite realize at this point how significant of a matchup this will be Friday night if you look at St. John's' non-conference schedule. With the way that this was set up, St. John's had that, that road matchup at Indiana, which they stormed back and, and weren't able to finish. But beyond tomorrow's matchup against Kansas, there isn't really much meat on the bones of this schedule. And if St. John's isn't able to upset Kansas, the likelihood is this program will end non-conference play without a Ken Palm top 100 win. And that's a very big deal because then you're relying on beating the likes of say Villanova or Marquette or Xavier, Seton Hall, some of these types of Big East games that have been a challenge for St. John's in the past. And things get dicey pretty quick, but I do think there are things that need to be ironed out. Uh, there have been some long scoring droughts and lapses uh, for this team, despite their star power with, uh, with Champagny. Uh, but I, I still think that this will be uh, this will be a pretty challenging matchup for both sides. I think uh, St. John's just has to, to has to come out strong. They they can't fall behind earlier. I think this could this could be a challenging matchup for them. Yeah, to me, this is a game where Posh Alexander has to find a way to exploit the weaknesses of Remy Martin, the other side of Remy Martin. This is a game where Posh Alexander, the head of St. John's Snake, has to pressure and has to make things happen, create havoc. If you don't turn the basketball over against Mike Anderson's system and you force St. John's to do a half-court game, it could be a long night for the Red Storm. The Red Storm are not a particularly strong shooting team from the perimeter. That's why tomorrow night they're going to need Tariq Coburn and Montez Mathis to deliver something in this game. I think Joel Soriano, the Fordham transfer, is – off to a pretty solid start. He went six for eight last week uh, in the win over NJIT, but he played good minutes. He looks the part. He'll guard David McCormick. McCormick's been a bit up and down here early in the season, kind of reminiscent of last year before he got going. You're right, though, Eli. Like This comes down to St. John's ability to contain Ochai Abaji. Because if Abaji's getting in the open floor, not many teams are going to be able to beat Kansas. Neutralize Kansas in the half court, find a way in transition, and can they find enough perimeter shooting? You know, look, Kansas has, on any given night, Christian Braun, uh, Mitch Lightfoot hits shots for them, comes in off the bench. He's a good shooter. Jalen Wilson, we haven't seen that really break out, actually struggled against Iona a little bit. But the point is, this is an opportunity for St. John's. That's their, this is their crown jewel. Like, you lose this game, like you said, then you go into Big East play with a lot of pressure on yourself, probably having to get 11 Big East wins out of the 20 games, if not 12. You can't just go 500 in your league. You'll be hanging by a threat unless you beat Villanova. So this is a really, really interesting game in more ways than one because Kansas has showed that they do have some vulnerability, but also because St. John's hasn't showed us enough to this point. Yeah, and you look at Kansas. David McCormick has really struggled this year. Jalen Wilson coming off his suspension, like you said, has really struggled this year. I think if you're St. John's, you got to obviously force turnovers. That's what Mike Anderson teams do. You want to speed up the tempo. You want to make Kansas play faster. You want to make Remy Martin play out of control. But at the same time, if you can make Kansas's front court beat you, I, you know that's what you got to do because Ochai Abaji, Christian Brown, Remy Martin, you don't want those guys to beat you. You have to make David McCormick and Jalen Wilson beat you. And I think that's a game St. John's can win if that happens. Eli, uh, Purdue, Iowa tomorrow night Rutgers Illinois tomorrow night any chance that either of those visitors wins or which visitor has a better shot uh I mean I don't think Iowa has that much of a hoax trying to slow down this Purdue defense I think there's just way too much scoring power 
Uh, I don't think Purdue's going to lose a game at Mackey. It's probably true. It's been the case. It's been the case before. And given the the dynamite offense that they have uh, this season, I think it's even more unlikely. I I think Rutgers has enough to kind of – to muck things up against Illinois. And, and as far as biggest disappointments, I'd have Illinois up in that conversation because the turnover issues are, are serious. So it's not only concerning, but the long-term trajectory of this team changes significantly based on turnover issues. And a lot of that falls upon uh, Andre Curbelo and the struggles that he's had this season. So I think, could this be one of those big 10 games that finishes up in the fifties and is just a, a slog to get there it wouldn't be a surprise if Rutgers played that style of basketball. Illinois played that style of basketball. I think there's going to be a need for uh, the Scarlet Knights to defend Kofi Coburn and, and not allow him to go off. But uh, I think this could be a potential matchup that we see. Very low scoring, probably plenty of turnovers, and, uh, and, and one of those matchups that could go potentially either way. Yeah, I mean, I think Iowa probably has a better shot only because, I, I, not that I think they're going to win, I don't think that at all, but Rutgers has just been really rough this season. They've trailed at halftime in uh, every game, I think, or maybe maybe their most recent game against Clemson they weren't, but every game besides that they trailed at the half, and that's like against Mary Mack, uh, Lehigh, Lafayette, that, a lot of games they shouldn't be trailing in at any point. Uh, their offense has been really bad. Ron Harper Jr. looked good in the last game. Geo Baker didn't play, so let's see what he if if he suits up in this one. Cliff Amorie looked really good against Clemson the other day. Looked much improved, but if he gets in foul trouble against Kofi Coburn, he might go for forty points. I mean, it's certainly possible because outside of Amorie, they have nobody that can def- defend Kofi Coburn. Uh, Saturday, looking at some of the slate here, you've got Iowa State taking on Creighton. You've got Tennessee meeting Colorado. Here's my game to watch Saturday. It is a rivalry game between Marquette and the top 25-ranked Wisconsin team. Johnny Davis, Brad Davis, and the Badgers have, have gotten their offense going enough. We know that they defend. Meanwhile, Marquette has been perhaps the one of the biggest surprises in the country. They were picked preseason nine in the Big East. They beat Illinois. They beat West Virginia on a neutral floor. They beat Ole Miss on a neutral floor. They're off to their best start in a decade, and Havoc is truly back. So you get Daryl Morsell, who has played Wisconsin, knows what it's like to play against them. You have uh, Tyler Kolek, who's actually the George Mason transfer, I think, has been better than anybody could have predicted. And Justin Lewis, of course, a sophomore forward. I think Marquette, Wisconsin, has a chance to be a terrific, terrific game on Saturday afternoon, guys. Even when Marquette's down, like last year, you saw what happened in that one. Justin Lewis, Micah Potter didn't block out. Justin Lewis gets a wide-open layup to win the game. I mean, even when Marquette's not good or Wisconsin's down, they're both up this year for the most part, so it should be a good game, but it's always a really good game between those two. Yeah, I think uh, Daryl Morsell against Johnny Davis, that's kind of strength against strength, and that's a really, really fun matchup, just the breakout that Johnny Davis had at the Mali Invitational. He's so steady. He's so calm with the basketball Facing an elite defender in Marcel, that's going to be a very fun individual player matchup. So uh, this will be a really fun one to watch. As we begin to wind down, let's do some parting shots here. Um, From anywhere around college basketball, one thing that we didn't get in this hour that you want to bring up, a team, a player. Uh, I look at the country, you know, and I think about a couple of things, but one thing that, that I hone in on is, Porter Moser 
at Oklahoma. I wasn't sure what kind of hire, like they, if that would necessarily match up. That's a great win for them against Florida last night. And Porter Moser looked like he, he just looked like the right fit for the Lon Kruger post stack. Did you guys see the video post game? He's all over the student section. He's going crazy. I loved it. I'm, I think Porter Moser is not only an example of a guy who, who earned the, the power conference job, but damn, like, it's almost like the casual sports fan got so caught up in the sister gene that they forgot about the fact that Porter Moser is a really, really good freaking coach. And he mm-hmm. does a great job of exposing your weaknesses. And he did that at Loyola. I thought he did a terrific job defending Florida last night and really making Florida uncomfortable in that game. Nice result for the Sooners in Norman. Um, and look, another result for a Big 12 conference that expects to be deep. So my final thought is Porter Moser at Oklahoma, I'm buying. Sean. My final thought is look at what Memphis has done the last two games. Lost to Iowa State as heavy favorites. Lost at Georgia as heavy favorites. And that's a Georgia team they should really be, especially without Aaron Cook playing. Next four games for Memphis at Ole Miss on Saturday. Then they follow that up with hosting Murray State, a team they can lose to. Murray State is loaded with talent. Tevin Brown, K.J. Williams, Trey Hannibal, Carter Collins, a lot of talent there. Then they play Tennessee and Alabama. If Memphis loses all those games, that's six straight losses. Then we're talking about, is Memphis even an NCAA tournament team, which for the talent they have would be a complete disaster. Yeah, no, Penny Hardaway talked about the fact they feel like an AAU team. Guess what? They do. I said on this very show last week, I think that they could be on the wrong side. Uh, and here's the thing. They can't make up for it in their conference. Their league's not good enough if they, no. if they have a really bad stretch. Eli, your parting shot. I'll give a shout-out to the Mountain West Conference. I think that – even despite some of San Diego State's struggles, the conference has been very strong. And uh, we knew what Colorado State was going to bring this season. They still have yet to lose a game. They stormed back from a plus 20 deficit against Northeastern. It shows the strength that they have in storming back. But I think even some teams like Utah State with Justin Bean, he's, he's been one of the most productive, if not the most productive player in college basketball. Wyoming has gone on the road, beaten Washington and Grand Canyon. They shoot the basketball extremely well, despite the loss of Marcus Williams. And I like the depth of this league, too. Uh, Even some teams like UNLV, New Mexico, even Air Force, which could have very well been the worst team in this conference, is off to a 6-1 and start. That's a a huge credit to Joe Scott and what he's done there. I like the the depth of this conference. I don't know if it's going to translate to necessarily three, four bids, but uh, I just think for the fact that when you do have a team like San Diego State that could rightfully right the ship, they, they have a number of players who graduate in the offseason. I think that they'll be just fine. But uh, the fact that they haven't been on their A game and the conference has still been just fine, I think that's a really good sign for the Mountain West moving forward. San Diego State and Michigan on Saturday. Steve Fisher Bowl happening there over in Ann Arbor should be a lot of fun. Uh, that does it for us. We're presented by Bet Rivers. Bet Rivers, it's the place to get all your bets in. Thanks to Rob Dowster. Thanks to Eli Betker. And thanks to Sean Paul. I'm John Fanta saying so long, everybody. And we will talk to you this weekend, the first weekend of December, bringing some marquee non-conference showdowns with it.
Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big. 